0: Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 19,
1: Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Bruce Novelly. Let's just bow our heads, shall we? Our gracious, loving, and eternal God, we come humbly into your presence, knowing that we are sinners, but we come boldly recognising our need. And so we pray this morning that you will be here with us, guide and direct. In our thoughts this morning, we come with open hearts, And we give permission for the Spirit to come and enter and change those stony hearts of ours into hearts of flesh. We do want to be more like Jesus. So shut us in with you this morning. Let nothing distract us as we spend this time with you in your presence We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I just love reading and studying the stories of Jesus. He's the master storyteller and teacher. And he delivers his most important messages to us in his stories. At one time, his disciples asked him why it was that he so often spoke in parables. And he said that genuine truth seekers would understand the true meaning of his illustrations, but that those who were not spiritually inclined would fail to appreciate their meaning. And so this morning I hope that all of us here are sincere seekers after truth. With this in mind and with this time that we share together this morning, Jesus tells a parable that reveals a truth about God that is quite disturbing to the natural human way of thinking. At first glance, it conflicts with our sense of good old Aussie fairness and justice. It's an intriguing parable and is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 20. It's told due to an encounter that Jesus had with a person in the 19th chapter of Matthew. And so... Before we begin to unpack this parable, we must first go back to chapter 19 and set the scene. In the 19th chapter, we find the story of the rich young ruler. This young man eagerly confronts Jesus with the question what must I do to be saved? And Jesus answered him by saying, well, you must keep the law. Oh, said the young man, I've been doing all that since I was a young boy. Well then, said Jesus, there's only one thing more that you need to do. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then Come and follow me. In recounting this event, Matthew observed that the young man went away very unhappy because he was quite wealthy. And as Jesus watched that young man walk away, he finished by saying to all those that were standing there, It is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle. The disciples who had been standing off to one side, watching the dynamics of this encounter unfold, were quite concerned. Jewish tradition had always taught that those who were wealthy were rich because they were in the favour of God. That this was why this young man was rich. He was in God's favour. To their way of thinking, if a person of wealth who was in God's favour could not be saved, how then could a poor man have any hope at all. And so now if you run down to verse 25, the disciples ask Jesus, who then can be saved? Jesus had just turned away a wealthy man. And in the Jewish way of thinking, it just didn't make any sense. But it is Simon Peter who draws out the question even more clearly into focus for us. And he asks the question that is on the mind of every one of us. But we are too sophisticated to ask it, and too self righteous to admit that we even think it. Peter didn't seem to have any problem with asking. He simply lays his cards on the table and he says, Lord, we have given up everything. Riches, family life, our livelihoods, and all our friends to follow you. What then shall we have? In other words, we've we've done all this that you ask this young man to do. We have given up everything. So then, what is in it for us, Lord? How do we stand to profit? Where's the payoff for us? And in response to Peter's question, Jesus tells us all this parable found in the 20th chapter. It's the story of a Margaret River vine vineyard owner who goes into the labour exchange in the town early in the morning and hires workers for his vineyard for the whole day. A little later, after nine o'clock in the morning, he goes back and he hires some more workers. And then at midday he goes back again and then again, yet again at three o'clock in the afternoon, and hires still more workers. And lastly, at five o'clock in the afternoon, just one hour before knock-off time, he goes back to the labour exchange and he hires more workers. Let's pick up the story, shall we, by turning to the to the twentieth chapter of Matthew, and we're going to start reading down there at verse eight. The workers have come to the end of the working day. It's time for the workers to be paid, and then for them to go home. Matthew twenty. And starting there at verse 8. And we're going to read down to verse 15. Uh, And if you don't have your Bible with you, we've got it up on the screen for you. I'm going to be reading from a slightly different version to you. But the story will still remain the same. Verse 8. In the evening when the harvest was done, The owner of the vineyard said to his supervisor, call the men together so that I can pay them. And hey, let's begin with those who were hired last. Verse 9, so the men he had hired at five o'clock in the afternoon lined up first. And when they came up to the pay table... The vineyard owner gave them a silver coin, a full day's wage, just as he had promised those that he had hired first. At first, the men who had been hired early in the morning became very excited. They reasoned that since they had worked hard all day, they should get proportionately more. But when they came up to the pay table and got a a silver coin, the same as the others, they were angry. They complained to the owner and accused him of unfair labour practices. They said, some of these men worked only a few hours and you paid them a full day's wage, the same amount that you gave us but we bore the burden and worked through the hottest part of the day and now we get the same as them? That's just not fair. The vineyard owner answered, friends, how do you figure I am being unfair? Didn't you agree to do a full day's work for a silver coin? Take your pay and go home and just be glad someone hired you today. I decided to pay all the workers a full day's wage and don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Why do you think it's wrong for me to pay them what I want Do you wish to hold a grudge against me because I am generous? This parable that Jesus told must have fallen with a big thud upon the ears of its listeners. Simon Peter asked Jesus a serious question. And in reply, he gets a story that on the surface sounds quite ridiculous. The owner of a vineyard that pays equal wages for men who do not work equal hours. And that's not the Australian way. This story runs counter to our whole system of justice and fair play. Who would work all day if you could simply turn up, uh, wait until the last hour and then collect a day's pay? This story that Jesus told turns our whole economic system upside down. The fact is that deep within us all, We have a kind of sympathy for those grumbling workers. You see, we all live in a world of tallies and accounts, of debts owed and debts paid. We live in a world of boundaries and schedules, spreadsheets and bookkeeping, a world of hourly wage rates, In a comic strip a few years ago, Billy and Jeff were squabbling over the size of the slices of pie that their mother had given them. They aren't the same, Jeff pouted. So Mum tries again. She evens up the slices. But still, Jeff's not happy. They still aren't the same, he whined. This time his mother uses a ruler and absolutely proves that both slices are exactly the same same size. But mum, Jeff complained, I want mine to be just like Billy's, only bigger. You know, we all tend to think that we deserve a bigger slice of the pie. From the time that we are small children, we are all taught that doing more is worth more. Did you ever get an allowance as a child? That weekly reward for doing the chores that were your responsibility anyway? If so, the amount of work that you did to earn your allowance went up as you got older and your responsibilities increased. If a five-year-old got a dollar for picking up their toys and rubbish and clothes, if an, if an eight-year-old got five dollars for feeding the dog, emptying the rubbish and doing the dishes, then a 12-year-old should get considerably more for mowing the lawn, helping cook the tea, watch over the younger brothers and sisters, clean the garage and wash the car. These chores and allowances are meant to teach children that in this world, in this world's economy, we have to do work in order to receive our rewards. We want our children to learn and to live by the adage that hard work pays off. That's why in this day and age this parable is so unsettling. It's easy for us to identify with the grumbling workers who worked all day through the heat of the day and then watch in amazement as some slacker who worked for one measly hour in the cool of the approaching evening, no less, gets paid a full day's wage. All this goes against the business mentality that dominates our lives. We have always been taught you only get out of something directly into proportion to what you put into it. Yet, that's not what Jesus is saying in this story. To our way of thinking, the labourers who came to the field late got something for nothing. This parable challenges us then not to look upon the kingdom of God or upon the church for that matter, as a business community. Yet this is difficult for us to do because this is our only point of reference. What do you think would happen if a person joined our church here this morning and immediately after being welcomed into fellowship, our pastor tells the congregation that this person is to be the head elder or the head deaconess. How do you think the members would react? Well, I think I know how they would react. They would all protest as loudly as Simon Peter protested to Jesus. Of course the full-day worker expects more. Of course the full-day workers should get more. It's only fair. More work should equal more wages. Hard work pays off. That's the Australian way. But here in Jesus' story of the kingdom, it doesn't pay off. Instead, those who worked right through the day got the same dusty dollars as the workers who worked only one hour got. How's that fair? It's not. Simon Peter must have been particularly offended by the story because it is obvious who he identifies with. He sees himself as one of those labourers who was chosen in the early morning and worked all day. He doesn't comprehend why these latecomers should be given preferential treatment. Now don't get Simon Peter wrong. He's not opposed to favours being handed out. He simply believes that if someone should receive uh, them, it should be those who worked in the field all day. People just like him. But Jesus' parable is not about the human concept of fairness. This parable is about the kingdom of God the kingdom that is holy under God's rule. And God, well, he's not fair. And thank God for that. Thank God that he's not fair. Not the, the God who rules the heaven and earth, is the God of justice and mercy, not the God of fair and equitable. The problem with the servants who worked in the field all day, and it is our problem as well, is that do we do not comprehend the nature of God's unmerited grace. We sing songs, like there's a wideness in God's mercy and amazing grace. But the truth is that we often feel put out by last-minute converts or deathbed conversions. We feel that these people have gotten the best of both worlds. They got something that we didn't get and for nothing, and it doesn't seem quite fair. But God's grace is not based upon what is fair. It wasn't fair that the laborers who worked only an hour received a full day's wage, but look at who they were. All day they had been there, in the labour exchange and no one had chosen them for employment. They were the rejects. They were there all day, just standing idle, waiting and hoping for someone to come along and hire them. They were the bottom of the barrel the selection of workers in Jesus' parable is as unpredictable as life itself. We may proudly assert that all people are born equal, but there is no denying that we are not all born equal. Some here in our congregation may have been born into money and comfort but many of us have not. Some of us here are born with the strength and agility and grace of athletes, but many of us are not. Some of us have intellects that stretch and soar, but many of us do not. Some of us have young healthy and vibrant bodies, but many of us do not. Some of us are born with physical disabilities that make every day a championship challenge. Some of us have minds with holes and hurts. Some of us get picked on the first round through the labour exchange but many of us do not. In fact, any one of us might suddenly find ourselves alone and unclaimed at some eleventh hour of our lives. I thank God that he is much more than a God of justice, because an unflinching God of justice would have left us all standing in the labour exchange still out of work out of good fortune outside the vineyard that is God's kingdom we are all 11th hour people fallen humanity has no place to go at the close of the day we can all be thankful for, an enduring, for the enduring promises and the presence of a gracious God because we are all dependent upon his compassion, generosity and mercy. The 11th hour laborers, the thief on the cross, the prodigal son who deserved nothing, Yet received the fatted calf and the golden ring and his father's love. They're all examples of God's kingdom. We are all testimony to the strength and the power of God's justice and his unmerited favour. By telling this story, Jesus is informing not only Simon Peter, but he is telling all of us as well that we can that we will get nothing. Uh, more, no more reward from discipleship than anyone else. The person who comes late is just as important as the person who started work early. There is no such thing as ecclesiastical hierarchy. The pastor and the elders and the worship leaders and the deacons and the deaconesses, they all need forgiveness and grace just as much as the 11th hour worker Going back to the beginning of the parable there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20, we read that the vineyard owner and the workers agreed on the the daily wage before they were hired. What he paid those last workers who were in the field for one hour was not correct based upon the minimum wage scale. But it was right, according to the desperateness of their condition. God's grace isn't based upon fairness, it's based upon what is right and based upon our need if there is any special payoff for being selected early to labour in the Lord's field, it is simply the inner satisfaction that we receive from being in God's employ. But we are so much like those all-day labourers. Notice how they worded it there in verse 12. We carried the burden in the heat of the day. So often, isn't that how we look upon service for God? Not a joy, not a privilege, but a burden that we have to carry in the heat of the day. Clearly, when Simon Peter asked Jesus what they were to receive from the kingdom, he had in mind something that was a little bit more substantial than just inner satisfaction. But we still think that the whole thing is not fair. And by our standards, it certainly isn't. But let me tell you something else that isn't fair. It really wasn't fair that Jesus, the Son of God, a sinless man, should go to the cross for your sins and mine. Yet that's precisely what happened. The kingdom of God is up there in another dimension. One that turns our world upside down. And that is precisely what Jesus wishes to do. When he chose to go to the cross for you and for me, he didn't first ask the questions that we would ask. He didn't first ask, do we deserve it? Or can we repay the debt? Because the answer to both those questions is no. The economics of God's kingdom are quite unlike the economics of our world. And like Simon Peter, we, are, we busily complain about the unfairness of it all. We miss the point that if God had our tally book mentality and went strictly by what is fair, then salvation would be out of, out of the grasp of every one of us. The issue was not about fair, but rather how far-reaching, how wide, how deep, And how all-encompassing is the mercy of God. God's grace is amazing in the way it includes everyone, welcomes everyone, forgives everyone, and loves everyone. But grace can be exasperating too. How do you react to this story of exasperating, extravagant love? I mean, we would all expect the owner of the vineyard, who we interpret to be God, to be gracious, yes but not to really go overboard with it. He could have maybe given half as much to those who got there late in the day, later in life, at five o'clock in the afternoon, and that would have been okay with us. Letting them spend summers in heaven but spending the rest of the year somewhere else would seem more appropriate, don't you think? This equality thing, this giving everybody the same reward, making all those newcomers equal to those of us who have been here bearing the burden under the heat of the day, All these years, listening to one boring sermon after another, doesn't seem quite fair, does it? Isn't it remarkable how grace doesn't feel so gracious when we have to share it with someone else? Especially if it is someone we don't think is... As deserving of equality as with us. Isn't it intriguing how the more amazing God's grace is, the more we grumble about it? We have such a hard time being happy when something good happens to someone else. We don't think that they should deserve a better treatment than we do. Why should someone who didn't even go to church for the first 40 years of their life get the same benefits as those of us who have been working in the church longer than them? Doesn't seem quite fair. If. If God is going to run the vineyard that way, paying everyone the same wage, no matter how long or how hard they have worked, seeking, constantly seeking more workers for the harvest, even up to the last hour, Then as Peter posed the question to Jesus, how do we stand to profit? Where's the payoff for us? If these 11th hour workers can come through the the back door there, smiling from, from ear to ear, and get treated the same as the rest of us? Doesn't hard work count for anything? I ask you, is it really true? Do we all have to be saved by grace alone? I mean, Even us. Fortunately, God doesn't keep a tally book or keep a score on us. We have no IOUs after our name because some 2,000 years ago he marked them all paid in full and nailed them to the cross. The only way for you and me to be saved is to forget about our accounting system and let God be as reckless and as generous and as extravagant and as indiscriminate with his grace as he wants to be. God bless. Our gracious, loving God, we have talked this morning about your amazing grace for sinners. Each one of us is an 11th hour worker. We thank you that you sent your only son, Jesus, into the world that all those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This morning as we leave this place and go out into a world of darkness we pray that you will go with us as we rub shoulders with those in the supermarket and on the street and our neighbours in our neighbourhoods we pray that they may be able to see the difference that knowing you makes in our lives. Watch over us, keep us safe from harm and danger. And as we live for you, we pray that you will bless us, guide and direct in our lives. And day by day, may we live in your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by the Bunbury Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Bunbury SDA.
0: How? speak and set the record straight, that's my God. say he's nothing more than fairy tale. He's just a myth or legend. His presence is not real. His word is not correct politically. They curse and mock his name defiantly. Oh, but time never changed the changeless one. Their lies cannot disprove the existence of God's Son. Though some may be content to just sit by, I for
2: one must stand and testify.
0: The Clark family sang, That's My God. And up next, the Hamilton family will sing, You Are Always Good. in, I can see my frailty, my sin is great, and my strength is so small. Still you stay, and your mercy shelters me, you hold my hand,
2: and you hear my call. for Kids with Uncle Gordon, where you will hear first-hand accounts of answers to prayer and miracles from God. Oh, by the way, I think adults will like this too.
3: Hi boys and girls, lovely to be able to talk to you today, Uncle Gordon here. I wish you could come and sit a little bit closer, but you listen good. I have in my hand a watch. It's a, a big heavy metal watch. It has on the front of it Rolex. Now, if you know anything about watches, you know that Rolex is a very expensive, good quality watch. But my daughter, when she was traveling overseas, picked this one up in a place for a few dollars. And it worked probably for about three weeks and then it stopped. And so I soon realized that it was a Rolex on the name, but not a Rolex on the inside. It wasn't a genuine article at all. When you see a heavy watch like this, you just try and picture it for a little moment. If you were to take a jar or a little dish and fill it with water and to put the watch on the top of that water, what would happen? Would it float? No, you know it wouldn't float. It would just sink straight to the bottom very quickly. No matter what you did to that water, even if it was salt water, which is a little bit denser than normal water, it would still sink straight to the bottom. Well, this story is about the watch that floated. Unri was the one who told me because it happened to him. Unri was working on a little group of islands in the Solomon Group of Islands, and he was working for a a company called Leavers Plantations. And the the men in charge were from England mainly who were in charge of this big company. Unri's job was he was the captain of a little motor yacht. And that little boat that he used to, used to drive, used to run, used to be the captain of, he would hook up a whole lot of trailer boats to the back of it. And his job was to go from one island to another to collect all the coconuts that were being gathered from those islands and bring them back to the main wharf. And there they would be husked and they would have all their treatments done to them and then they would be packaged and, and then we would buy them in our supermarkets eventually as coconut, often grated coconut. Ungari enjoyed his job very, very much. And every now and again, something different would happen, something special. And this day, his boss called him and said, Ungari, I've got a friend who's coming from England and he's come to visit me and he wants to go on a picnic day and I'd like you to take him. Would you do that for me, please? And Ungari said, sure, I'd love to do that for you. And so he unhitched all his little trailer boats and tied them to the wharf and and prepared the little motor yacht that he had for this man and his wife and the children. And they came down to the wharf and he helped them all on board and, and then off he chug, chug, chug in that little diesel engine boat off to a beautiful little island, which I had been on for a picnic as well. Anyway, at the end of the day, they'd all have enough swimming, enough sunbaking, enough playing on the beach... And uh, they began to get in the boat to come home. When they got home, Ungari said goodbye to them and said, I hope you've all had a good day and, uh, and they all headed off. And the next morning they got on another little boat and headed off back to Honiara to fly back to England. After they had gone, the boss called him. Said, Ungari, I'm just so disappointed in you. Why did you steal that man's watch? And Ungari swallowed and said, what? What do you mean, steal that? I haven't touched that man's watch. I haven't even seen that man's watch. No, he said that you had stolen his watch. But, but why would he say that? He said, well, he had his watch and he put it in his shoe when he went to go for a swim. And uh, then when he got back here to the wharf and he went to get his watch out of his shoe and it wasn't there anymore. And you were the only one there who wasn't family. So you must have stolen his watch. "'I'm sorry, Hungry. I'm very disappointed in you. "'I'm going to have to sack you.' "'And Hungry protested, he said, "'But boss, you know I'm a Christian. "'I wouldn't touch anything that's not mine. "'I wouldn't steal anything. You know it. "'I wouldn't do that kind of thing. "'Please, boss, think again. Something else must have happened. "'Sorry, Ungeri. He said you stole it. You stole it. "'See you later.' Hungry walked out, very disappointed.' He went back to his little house and he sat there and he was angry because he knew it was wrong. Somebody had charged him with something that he hadn't done and then he felt bad too because this was misrepresenting God. He always wanted to stand true to God at all times and now now this other man has gone back to England thinking that this man who's supposed to be a Christian steals. That wasn't fair. He didn't know what to do. And he began to talk to God about it. And all of a sudden, he had a little thought. Go back to the island. So he quickly ran down to the wharf and jumped into his little boat that still wasn't tied up to any other other uh, little passenger boats, all, all the other little uh, trailer boats that were there. And he went back to the little island. And he drove right up onto the edge of the beach where he had the day before. When he got there, he said a little prayer. God, if this watch is here, Please help me find it. Then he walked along the beach on one side of the boat, way along the beach to as far as you thought anybody would ever run. And then he stepped up another metre up the beach and then walked back all the way, watching in the sand carefully all the time in case the the watch was there on the beach somewhere. Then he turned around and went up another metre and then walked back and forth along the beach. When he had covered the whole beach, he went to the other side of the boat and did the same. And it was now getting near dark. And he thought, well, it's too late to see. I need to go. I'm disappointed, God, he said, just to himself, that I haven't found the watch. And so he began to walk out into the water to get behind the boat, to give it a tug, to pull it out. And all of a sudden, something flashed in the water. And he looked, what was that? Something shouldn't have been flashing. What was that? And he looked again closely. And there on top of the little waves was a watch floating on top of the water. And it had grains of sand on it, had a little bit of seaweed on it. It had obviously, as he put his hand under it and picked it out of the water, it had obviously been in the water and uh, the sand had been flowing over, been pushed over it and seaweed had come over the top of it. And so he kept all the sand on top of it and all the seaweed on it to prove what had happened and carefully got into the boat carrying the watch. He pushed that little boat as hard as he could back home. And as soon as he had tied the boat up to the wharf and turned the motor off, he rushed straight up to the boss's house. He didn't even knock at the door as he always would. He just opened the door and rushed in. And there they all were sitting at the table having their evening meal. And there he had the watch in his hand. He said, "'Boss, there it is. I've been to the island and I found it. Look, it's got the sand on it. It was under the water, but, but I prayed to God and, and the watch came up out of the water and it was on the top of the water. There's the seaweed. There's the sand.'" And the boss looked at him. He said, Ungri, I am so sorry. I blamed you for something that I knew you wouldn't do. I have known you were a Christian all along, but I didn't know how else to respond to my friend's comment. So, Unri, sorry, you are reinstated. Thank you so much for being so honest. So, Unri started work again, so pleased that God had intervened for him. But the story didn't end there. A couple of weeks later, he received the letter from the man in England. And the man in England had written his little letter saying, Ungery, I could see you were a Christian. The light of God's love just flowed through your face. Your face just shone with joy all the time. I knew you were a Christian, but I couldn't find my watch. As I was getting in the boat with the watch in my shoe, I must have turned a little bit and the watch fell out as I was getting in. I'm sorry to blame you, Hungry. Thank you for finding the watch. Then he said, This is just a small token of my appreciation, and there was a cheque for Hungry. That cheque was worth a whole year's wages for Hungry. So he said to me when he told me the story, Pastor, it pays. It pays to be true to God. So boys and girls, when sometimes you might be tempted to steal or to say something that's not true, remember that it always pays, always pays. It mightn't be money, but it will be a satisfaction, a peace of joy in knowing that you've done the right. You've said the right thing. You've represented God each day. God bless as you live for Him.
2: Listening to Mission Stories for Kids with Uncle Gordon, a production of Three ABN Australia Radio. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on Three ABN Australia Radio.